When did we go from being casual fans to fan club members to stands of artists? When did fan clubs turn into full fandoms and become such a big part of fans' identities? How has the internet accelerated that as well as other trends? How did we become such passionate fan bases? And for better and for worse, how are we showing our true selves or changing our true selves in the process of being and staying fans and recruiting other people into the fandoms? How do we want these fandoms to be remembered? Are we less likely to leave our fandoms now that we're, more, we're spending more time invested in them every day? Or is that extra time having the opposite effect, causing fatigue, a saturation, and an exposure to the dark underbelly of certain fandoms in the members that have bad intentions? How do we reconcile the, the fans that do terrible things within our own fandoms with the ability to still continue supporting our favorites while still not excusing their behavior? What are the ethics of fandoms these days? How do we even know what those look like? What, what do fans do to get compensated for the free publicity they give their favorite stars? And really, ultimately, what does it mean to be a fan? What is fandom culture? And what, what is the history of it? Who, who, gets to gra who gravitates toward what artists and why? Why are certain fandoms considered mainstream while others are cast aside and dismissed as insignificant or just worth belittling overall? How are fans around the world interacting and connecting with each other through their shared interests? And who is excluded or included from these fandom groups and interests? Who is encouraged to join and who is excluded from doing so? All of these questions and more are what I want to get at in this new mini-series, How to Stand. If you subscribe to 17 Karat K-Pop, you will get these miniseries episodes as they are released regularly over the next few weeks, where I will be unpacking what it means to be a fan, what it has meant in the past, and what it might mean going forward in the future. If you want to get more information about the show and the references made in it, I will be having links revealed on the 17 Karat K-Pop website as well as through the newsletter. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about that. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello everybody, I'm Hope and this is How to Stand, part one, where I'm going to talk about some of the very unique band concepts that have led certain musical acts from around the world to where they are today has really contributed to their success and their individuality. So we're going to just dive right in and start by talking about what Luna did. So if you don't listen to 17 Karat K-Pop, my main show, or if you just need a refresher or don't know much about the world of K-Pop, really quick recap, K-Pop groups basically what you need to know is they are created through a bootcamp style structure usually, if not a reality show of some sort, and then artists are picked. It can be super quick or it can take years until they are picked to debut in a group. And once the group is formed by the company, they debut with a special concept, and sometimes they keep that concept, sometimes they switch it up over time, sometimes they go through a complete overhaul and even change their band name, and sometimes members are added over time, sometimes other members leave or are replaced. It's a whole system, really. And so groups form and evolve over time in that way. And, you know, some groups last a few years, some groups last a very long time. It, it, there's a big range of factors involved. But basically, that's kind of how the groups form in a super, uh, super broad way of quickly putting it. But some groups have chosen not to just debut a group 
in the, in the typical way. One of those being Luna. And what they did is they essentially reversed the order. So when K-pop groups debut, then if they kick off and really d- take off and develop a strong, passionate following, then, s- then certain members of the group will be able to pursue solo careers that are successful. Luna basically turned that formula on its head by letting members release solo tracks one by one as they introduced themselves to the world, and then the whole group finally came together for the very first time. So basically, over the course of 18 months, Luna members, one by one, and in three different subunits, released tracks. So you got to feel like you were meeting and getting to know a member individually, one by one, and you never saw the whole group perform together until the end of the 18-month period, when all 12 members came together to perform Favorite. And Fanatics is a girl group that did a similar strategy, but much smaller, where they basically had the subunit called Flavor debut before the full group got to show themselves to the world. And so that reverse strategy has proven to be quite successful for them both. There are some other unique systems in K-pop that have been used, such as a graduation system, where after you pass a certain age or amount of time in the group, you you basically graduate from the group. And sometimes that means you graduate and move to a new subunit. Other times it means you're just out of the group. After School is a group that did that. NCT has that concept. Although they kind of changed it recently because of backlash and fans didn't like to see Mark uh, leave, even though he's in like every subunit practically. But we also didn't want him to leave another one. So because he's like the Ryan Seacrest of K-pop, he can never have too many jobs. And so we decided to make sure he has another job by making him come back to NCT Dream, even though he technically graduated. So but that's a whole other rant to go on another day. All to say that K-pop formulas can be very unique in how they decide to when and when they decide to promote these artists to the world. Another unique concept is with Super M, where that's basically a group, a super group, where they combined all of the diff, uh, all of the most popular stars from their different SM Entertainment bands into one super group. And so it's basically like the answer to the question, you know, if you could put together a dream group, who would you pick? And they basically just did that for the fans. Other really unique things about the world of K-pop, though, that I want to point out before I get into the, the genius of all of this. K-pop groups really have unique concepts in all sorts of realms. So it's not just in terms of the structure of how the band members present themselves to the world and how they... Yeah, how they present themselves and how they view themselves. But also they present themselves in unique ways in terms of the storylines that their music videos tell, in terms of the how long they prolong the story and all the Easter eggs they put throughout their performances and promo videos. And aside from all these music video worlds they build and, and sustain, there's also unique concepts when it comes to the outfits, when it comes to the props they use. There are just so many ways that they find a unique way to give people a new stage presence. And so I just want to give some of my favorite examples. So this is basically a good little intro to unique K-pop groups if you're pretty new to this industry and listening to K-pop. Seventeen is my first pick for unique. And just mostly, frankly, because I'm super biased for Seventeen and I just adore them and they're my favorite. Adore them was a pun intended, by the way. And their unique concept, to me, I will argue it's super unique just because it's 13 members. They are, they're known for their instinct synchronization. They really 
have just such a unique stage presence. But yeah, mostly I'm putting them in this list because I'm biased. If I'm really looking at how the K-pop groups that are the most unique in terms of their vision and their choreography and their costumes and all that, I'm going to have to say one of them is Vix. They really rely a lot on horror movies, on sci-fi concepts, and basically create mini-movies out of their music videos that have this dark tone to them, a lot of mythology references. Side note, if you check out an episode of my show called The Vix Universe Explained, you can check out that info about the myth mythology connections and whatnot on 17 Karat K-pop. And so that's super unique. ATs is also on my list of most unique for their concept, where they basically are on a treasure hunt. Is this the but a treasure hunt that's deeply symbolic in an alchemist style way? If you read the book The Alchemist, and so that's all I'll tease about them. Also, the range is really key. So a few more people on my list. After school is on this list. I've been actually I honestly I was a newer K-pop fan. Seventeen was the first group, or one of them, BTS really, but also Seventeen, first group I became a really hardcore stand for, and so I'm quite new to the genre, but then I really dived back into the classics, and one of them that I didn't dive into enough before, but recently did, is After School, Shampoo is everything and more, as well as their other songs, but really Shampoo is probably the best, and After School is really... they're very unique, and they're on my list because of the variety they do. They do all sorts of types of dancing, you know, from tap dancing to a drum line, you know, and so that I find really unique. Weekly has is a new rookie group that I really like as well. They have basically incorporated their school desks into the choreography, into the performance, and they carried around those desks for all of the different performances they did, which is impressive. Mamamoo also has tried, you know, incorporating pole dance and other unique dances into their sets. Uh, Boa really incorporates unique choreo. There was that iconic flip um, where her backup dancers carried her out upside down and she flipped to start the woman choreography. So to sum it up, 1780s Vix, After School, Weekly, Mamamoo, Boa are topping my list. But also there are more unique concepts like Tiara had this zombie concept for lovey-dovey that I found really interesting, although La Bam also did that, but I still find that really unique, especially because Tiara were the zombies as opposed to the guys turning into the zombies for La Bam. I also want to point out the unique stage presence of Speed, this K-pop boy group who danced in Heelys, which were all the rage for a while, so that was really cool. There are also groups that really have this whole fairy tale story universe, like Red Velvet and Gugudan, where basically they reenact and overtly show their inspiration from classic kids' stories, and you know, from the Wizard of Oz to, to uh, you know, maybe Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Maybe that wasn't their initial inspiration, but it sure sounds like it. So Pippi Longstocking, all these classic characters. And so basically what I'm trying to say is that a key, really, really cool marketing strategy is the world building. And so it's basically like when a movie poster comes out for a big movie, you know, you fans will like to overanalyze it for little Easter eggs in the background of the poster, hints about the character's direction, and they get time to think about the big movie characters before they actually see the movie. And that's kind of the way it is with some of these K-pop groups where they introduce you to each member, 
and then they all came together and it was just that much more exciting because you didn't just feel like you were watching a favorite debut, you were watching a ton of favorites debut and you were seeing all of these easter eggs, all of these little puzzle pieces finally come together into one big puzzle that made sense. And that is a very cool feeling to see all the pieces come together, just like a satisfying end of a movie trilogy or something, where all of those little side plots that were nagging in the back of your head because they weren't concluded yet are tied up in the end of a great uh, story. That is a great situation. It feels very satisfying. And that's what these groups have done that I think is smart, is give people little breadcrumbs to enjoy before showing them the full the full gingerbread house, if we're going with this analogy. So that's what I think is so smart about the marketing of one member at a time and just changing things up in a way. We've talked before on 17 Karat K-Pop about the concept of familiar surprises, which is basically used to describe how the best way to market is not not doing something so different that people resist it because humans just naturally don't like a ton of change abruptly, but also give them something somewhat new so that they're still interested. So that they're not, you know, they get bored of watching the same YouTube video over and over, but they also want to see the same people over and over. So give them a mix of familiar and new. And that is what K-pop does so well, especially those groups I pointed out with the storyline changes and just unique takes on performances that keep your eyes peeled for more. More unique groups I really want to spend a lot more time talking about are in the world of J-pop, where there, if you thought the group 17 was big, wait till you find out how many members are in some J-pop groups. You know that feeling you get when you're watching The Voice or American Idol or some other competition show and you're just rooting so hard for your favorite member and you feel so emotionally invested that it feels so crushing when they leave or so thrilling when they win and it's you kind of laugh at yourself sometimes because it feels so weird. Like, why am I so into this? What, like, what's the big deal? I need to calm down. I know my favorite didn't win or whatever, but... Um, why does it affect us at that emotional level? And so hopefully that is a relatable feeling for you and it's not just me being weird and screaming at the TV. So we're going to talk about that feeling. What does it mean and why, really, how are, Mark, how are uh, people who, how are PR people tapping into that feeling and exacerbating it? And J-pop brings a lot of answers to that question. Starting with, let's talk about AKB48. So... Quick background, this J-pop group, AKB48, informed in 2005, it is a group of 13 to early 20-year-old, uh, in their early 20s girls, and the amount of members is, wait for it, up to 140. Sometimes it shifts a little, and we're not going to get into all the details, but around 140 members of this group. Now, how is that possible? They are broken up in two ways. It's broken down into teams that are specific. So, for example, there's a subunit in Jakarta, there's a subunit stationed in Osaka, things like that. They are also split up, not just among, as sister acts, they call them, but subunits. So they have teams that form that have different concepts and they have subunits that form as different concepts. Basically, if I were to draw this as a family tree, I would draw AKB48 at the very top, which would branch out into teams, which would branch out into specific subunits. So it's a lot more like a flow, ch a messy flowchart with a lot of arrows than a family tree, but that's basically what I'm trying to say.
So what this does is it allows the group to be full, have full big synchronized numbers and synchronized voices without being so full that it is just this loud mess. And it also allows for a variety of concepts because some groups, some subunits act a bit sassier or more mature or just have a different vibe to their music. Others have a more cutesy vibe, and so they get to experiment with variety. And so if you're not into one unit, you can you might be into a different unit of the group. And so it can draw in more fans that way. So AKB48 does have kind of that graduation system, but they've really democratized it, where fans actually vote in elections for new members. They vote for which members they want in different music videos. They vote for role replacements or switches. So basically, fans have their hands all over this process of choosing who is in their favorite group. And however, though, there is some say of the professionals. They basically found these girls through auditions at first and continue to have audition rounds, but fans then vote about who stays in what positions. And there's also the ability for members to rejoin the group, regardless of if fans want them to or not. Um, but they have to re-audition. So basically, like, if I got involved in a scandal and was kicked out of the group, I could re-audition and get back in. So that is an option. And lineup changes sometimes also take rock, paper, scissors, and other unique formats. But basically, this group is constantly in flux, and it is constantly responding to fan feedback in the most extra way. It is the most extreme way to respond to fan feedback and show that you are listening to your consumers, essentially. So that is what they do, but that is not even what I consider the most unique thing about this group, the number or the method of structuring the group. The main thing for me is that they have their own stage that they perform at every night, and it was built just for them. So basically, the person who created AKB48 had this stage, this theater built for the group, and then the group was formed, and now that is, ex that is specifically a theater for them. So every night, you can watch AKB48 perform in this theater. Now, that is another reason why you need subunits, because not everyone will have the stamina to do that show every night. But they switch roles, they alternate, but there's someone performing there every night. Not this year because of COVID, but really, that is what it was designed for. So this group was so successful that it launched its own manga, its own TV show, monthly newspaper, video games galore, cosmetics, stamps, every type of merch and product promotion that you can think of, lots of music, of course, albums and concerts, basically everything. You can find AKB48 everything. It is like Disney, the amount of influence it has in Japan and elsewhere as well. It's really spread as well. Um, you know, actually, they were the first Japanese group to perform at the Lincoln Theater. They got two shows here in the USA. It's a very uh, iconic venue, so that was huge. So they do have some uh, international acclaim as well, although not at the level of some K-pop stars, um, some reasons why we will go into later, but... Basically, let's talk about what where this started. How is this a thing, and how did it get going? So the manager and creator of this group is named Mr. Akimoto, and I'm going to call him Mr. A for this. He basically decided that after he built this theater, only seven fans came. So the very first AKB48 show had an audience of seven. 
but he was determined and he, he just trusted that it would take time. He just believed in this group so much that not only did he build them a personal stage, but he knew that it, that seven audience members wasn't enough to deter the project and that with the right amount of time and spreading of the word, the fans would come to them. And so he was very confident in this group succeeding and it, it really paid off. Some key things he gave in one of his in uh, one of his rare interviews, he did one with the Wall Street Journal, one of his rare Western interviews, is he pointed out that he views himself as kind of an architect of a house, where he created this this outline, this structure for this group, and he oversees it all. He oversees every aspect of its building, of its constant updates, and home improvements, I guess you could say, but he doesn't personally specialize in every area. So where an architect oversees the whole thing but doesn't actually specialize in knowing how to pick a color scheme, for example, or pick a window size or build a roof or whatever, he basically oversees the group always but doesn't write all the lyrics or make all the music or anything like that. So he views himself as having his hands in many pots but also not building the pots himself, uh, to use a weird metaphor. So that is basically what he sees his role. He also thought that the concept would be successful because of how fresh and new it is. He viewed it as, quote, to create the feeling of excitement we have as children, unquote. So really, he wanted the excitement around this group to stem from the uniqueness that would tap into this childlike joy we get when we see a surprise. It's kind of the peekaboo effect in a way, where we see something that we didn't expect and it gives us kind of this dopamine jolt is what he was relying on. And that really paid off as well with this group. The main concept, though, that I want to zero in on that I find so interesting is that this was kind of reverse engineered in a different way, but also very broadly in an abstract way similar to what K-pop has done. So what K-pop has done with strategies like Luna's, where they introduce members one at a time, that has been a way to basically go from, basically flip the script so that you don't meet the group and then get to know the members once you get more invested in the fandom. You meet the members and then you are automatically invested in the group. That flipping of the script is what is happening here, where the concept here is that you don't see the idols after they're done rehearsing and ready to debut. You don't, in, in AKB48, these members are not debuting after they've been polished and spent years possibly training for this moment and everything is considered perfect and they're ready to show themselves to the world. These groups actually, the concept of them is that they debut after auditioning and getting picked and you watch them get better over time. They are meant to be, quote, unfinished. The group concept is unfinished. They are not polished. They are not considered super skilled singers or dancers yet. And you watch their journey just like you would watch your favorite on American Idol learn and grow. And you could gain the sense of being so proud to be a fan of them as you watch them get better and build up their stage presence over time. It's the same feeling that they hope to create with these types of groups, really, where the fans become so invested because they get to watch them grow up. It's kind of like if you have a sibling. If you have a sister, or, for example, who you're really proud of and you see them every day, right? And so it's like that. You see them at the theater all the time. You watch their performances over time evolve and get better, hopefully. Um, you 
you can say you're so proud of them, you feel emotionally invested in their journey, and you just root for them. And you root for them, they may feel like a bit of an underdog to you because you've seen their flaws, but you know that they can improve them. And so that's kind of what they hope to get out of this group, is fans will feel like it's a friendship of sorts. They are there to cheer them on as they get better, as opposed to having such high demands and expectations for their performances. And so again, it's really about that interactive sense, that sense of constantly listening to fan feedback, and it has paid off. And so that is really what he's tried to do. Another key thing he said in his interview I want to highlight is that he didn't want to focus on a target demographic. So a lot of guys like AKB48, but so do a lot of females and other people who identify in different ways, I'm sure. But really, he claims that Critics who argue this is just a bunch of older guys who will like this group insist that he's not trying to aim towards a certain demographic or anything, and he's just going with the flow. So basically, his argument is that don't focus too much on the demographic and perceptions of the fans when you could be focusing on things that are more substantial, like building up a fan uh, friendship with their supporters. And... He really didn't want to focus too much on labels and characterizations and finding a, a mechanical strategy, in a way, to promote a group. He wanted to see it organically form in a grassroots way, and so that's what he really invested a lot in. A lot of time and energy and a whole building he invested in this concept. One more thing worth noting. He talked a lot about his admiration for what Lady Gaga has done in her career. And what he said is that he basically hopes that AKB48 serves as similar world-building in norm-breaking. So the quote is, Just having good songs or lyrics won't sell CDs, but rather how much buzz you can create, whether you can define current trends. When Lady Gaga came to Japan, she brought a Hermes Birkin bag. That in itself is interesting. That someone with an anti-establishment attitude would carry such a classic conservative bag, but she had also written a message to her Japanese fans in Japanese on the bag in marker pen. I thought that was really cool, to graffiti such an expensive traditional bag. So I found that quote very interesting because it says a lot. It says that he really did want to try to create his own path with marketing because he knew that would get attention and interest and people would find it refreshing. The fact, I also find it interesting, the fact that he wanted to clash with uh, expectations in a way that would shock people. Again, it's that jolt of surprise he wants to give people, like a little kid. You know, little kids love drawing on the walls, right? It's kind of like that with Gaga coming out and not caring that she's doodling on a super expensive designer bag. And so it's that sense of just childlike uh, carefreeness that he wanted to tap into and was inspired to do so by people like Gaga, who basically write their own rules and live in their own world for those rules. Their music personas live in this special alternate reality that is really a welcome, safe place for all sorts of fans to avoid labels and to just form and grow their relationships with their favorite artists. And that's really what he tried to capture. Basically, the logo and slogan, the slogan, excuse me, for this uh, concept is idols you can meet, and that was his ultimate goal. Not treat them as he, again, it's a flipping of the script here, where it's not about putting an artist on a pedestal so that a celebrity is so untouchable, because that has its own, um, its own marketing value, that star appeal, but the flipping that upside down in that it's not, the, they're the opposite of untouchable. These artists are like your friends that you would see on a daily basis. 
Some really interesting things that have happened with this group over time. So they came together in 2005 with nearly 8,000 people auditioning. So they had a couple of initial rounds of this. So the second round of auditions, so the first round they had 8,000 people audition. The second round they had 11,900 people audition. The third round they had 12,800 people audition. People really just wanted to become a part of this special family that was forming. In July 2009, they were invited to perform at the Japan Expo in Paris. So they continued to get international attention already within four years of debut. They made their USA debut at Webster Hall in 2009. They performed in Moscow in 2010 at the Japanese Pop Culture Festival. And they continued to represent Japan at various events around the world since then. They also were on the show Produce 48 in 2018, which led them to a Stone Music and Genie Music uh, distribution deal to further increase their international spread. There have been some hiccups in the row with the group, mainly due to the virus. They cannot have those nightly shows anymore, but they have this new project going on, which basically it's spelled O-U-C-4-8. So the O-U-C-48 project is basically the Japanese word for home is used to describe this uh, virtual thing where all the members are virtually sing and dance and record themselves doing that and then the videos are compiled every night and posted to YouTube in a live stream for fans to watch. So they've gone virtual this year, but they continue to give fans daily content. So that was a bit of a hiccup in the road and an adjustment for them. But another thing that is more serious is the negative press. So there was a long negative press scandal issue with one of the subunits, NGT48, and that led to a lot of issues with the, with the group, kind of some hesitancy to really promote themselves at the full speed ahead mode they had been going. And they kind of uh, stepped back a little from the spotlight in a few ways, AKB48 did not have their typical general election this year, although they could easily just cite COVID for the reason for that, but I'm sure the scandal had something to do with that as well. Also, it is a year that is sad due to the graduation model where Sashihara was going to leave the group and she was one of the main ambassadors. She was considered a key speaker and leader of the group that helped them promote overseas and represent them overseas. So she was leaving... And then combined with COVID circumstances, it's been a rough going for them. But they remain very innovative with their marketing strategies in a way that is uh, is a bit debated about how ethical it is. So what they tried to do once is create yet another band member because they didn't have enough already. This digital band member was called Amy Iguchi. And yes, you heard right, digital. So this Amy... She basically, they didn't tell anyone she was a digital creation at first. They just said, meet our new member of the group. They even gave her a mini documentary online. But then fans kind of realized she looked a little familiar. And then she actually, she teamed up with this company called Glico. And she basically was promoting their candy. And the company released a behind-the-scenes video of her... Uh, creation. So it wasn't even just a behind-the-scenes about the candy ad, it was a behind-the-scenes about the actual uh, a- creation of this robot girl. And But she wasn't really a robot, no physical presence. But basically, it that unraveled everything. It sounds like the company wanted to keep it under wraps and keep it a secret that she was only virtual, 
but the company that she partnered with to sponsor them spilled the beans. And so then the company had to scramble to figure out what to do, and they eventually just decided to tell the truth. So they said, yes, it's true. She is voiced by a new 15-year-old member that you haven't seen, but the 15-year-old who voices her is not a part of the actual group. This is just a new member. The eyes, nose, face outline, mouth, hair, all of those were different parts taken from other members of the group. So she was a combination of a handful of members of the group combined for the CGI character. And so around the same time, actually, they promoted this new website called AKB Official Net. And if you went to that website, you could Photoshop in a way, edit, you could manipulate an image of your face to be merged with your favorite member's face. So there are a couple things I want to say about this. First of all, this new member who is not a real person attracted press attention outside of Japan. Around the world, people were really raising ethical dilemmas and felt conflicted, but also just confused and surprised and shocked. There were so many reactions to this internationally, so it was it was... It was great for them in an all-press-is-good-press mentality kind of way. Second of all, it was great publicity for that candy company to make that behind-the-scenes video. Third of all, it was great publicity for the group because they were able to promote their new website with that new feature at the same time. So maybe they had intended for the beans to be accidentally spilled all along. It's a very clever, unique strategy that they employed. So... This example is just one of many to say that this group is all about expecting the unexpected and taking what people think they will see and flipping it around. So just as you thought they flipped the traditional marketing concepts on their heads to basically introduce their members in a different way, they also flipped it on its head by introducing you to a non-human member. And just when they thought that they had flipped things over by saying, you're actually going to get to feel friendly. Like, not it's not a celebrities are untouchable thing, but this is a you're actually going to bond with and get to know and be friendly with this authentic personality that is imperfect. Then they create this quote-unquote, quote, flawless virtual human. So they mix authenticity with virtual things in ways that are always refreshing, and it's led to quite the global success. A similar success story is carried out by SNH48, they are, personally, I like their music better, but that's just a side story. Um, they are stationed in Shanghai, China. They are a girl group with over 200 members. And they have all the subunits, of course. They were created um, with the same system, basically. With a theater built just for them in Shanghai in 2012. And they were performing there every night. They had that Idols You Can Meet concept. They were also... They basically continued to to do what AKB48 did because they were an affiliated group, but they completely did sever ties in 2016, but they were intentionally created through the same strategy. They continued to kind of invert expectations by doing the opposite. As opposed to watching their story grow, they also again flipped things upside down and joined China's Got Talent after they were already popular. So you thought it was the opposite of watching a polished star debut by watching them learn to be more polished, but then they kind of flipped that expectation around 
twice somehow and got to a point where that was true but also the opposite where you were also watching them take an American Idol-esque journey while they were already gaining the fame that they had that typically you would expect them to be on the show to gain so it's again it's very clever because it's constant gymnastics trying to think about what people will not expect what's the opposite of the opposite of the opposite and they do that They've continued to receive funding from investors. It is treated and compared to a tech startup in that way where they got, they've gained by now over $150 million from donors, and so it is funded like a tech company. So that, you'd think, would take a hit due to the pandemic, but actually Silicon Valley types are thriving these days, so the funds keep coming. So that is not an issue for them. So what does all this say about marketing? Well, it says a lot. It says, expect the unexpected. And it says, it points out the, 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 how every, to me, the bottom line is really that it shows that every marketing strategy could possibly work, if that makes sense. That there is no key finite definition of a successful way to market a group. All sorts of unique concepts are desired and interesting and worth exploring. And you you can only for, form a formula and follow a formula so much, if that makes sense. Because it's really about constantly just trying to be ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, and figure out, you know, it's the combination of drawing influences from all over the world, combined with what people are not expecting, combined with a million other variables. So really... It's all about surprising people while also using familiar strategies. It's just such a unique, complex blend. And all to say that marketing musicians can be very tricky territory because you really just have to put yourself out there and experiment with ideas and just see where it takes you. And that there's no clear way to know if a group's marketing approach will be super successful. Because although I've said all of this... There are still some concepts that are super unique from groups that have not paid off in the same way. For example, there was a group, I believe they were just pronounced Lipless Sister, but it's Lipless X Sister, so maybe it's pronounced Lipless Time Sister. Anyway, their concept was uber-specific. They specifically recruited girls ages 18 to 22 who had young children. So the whole concept was young mothers, and they formed this band together. They even performed with their kids in strollers, pushing them around as part of like the choreography. You can even hear their kids as part of the background noise in their main hit single. So they were also credited with popularizing a certain dance in Japan. They were credited with popularizing or just bringing attention to an already popular mall that they performed outside of. They basically embraced the young mom look for their concept. And they didn't really release many singles or do much after that single. So so what went wrong? Because they did follow this formula. That's the thing, is that you can only follow it so much. Once you get more and more specific about what you want out of the idol, it proves that things may fall apart. Things will feel inauthentic. Like Mr. A said about AKB48, people people see through the fakeness, and they don't like that. And so he tried not to get too tied up in worrying about perceptions and just let people enjoy the music and think for themselves and let these stars 
become the stars they want to be organically and not tell them who to become and just let them become who they are. And so when you pigeonhole an artist's expectations too much, those constraints are vi become visible to fans and they don't want to see that. And so that may not be effective. Authenticity is key here. And if you let them be authentic, since everyone in the world is unique, you let them be unique. And it, uniqueness becomes this strength in the marketing world, which is a big takeaway that I have from this whole thing. So that I find very key, as well as the emotional attachment to stars. However, one thing to keep in mind that I've been wondering is if the novelty wears off. Are there limits to the celebs are untouchable mentality where it's actually uh, it hurts your publicity to be too accessible to fans. Can people reach a fatigue with you reaching them and contacting them on social media? Does that jolt of dopamine they get when you like, when a celebrity likes their tweet, for example, or posts about a show that they went to themselves on Facebook, or does anything that makes you feel closer to the star? If they do that so much regularly, do they just become like another friend texting you back where you like it, but it's not like it gives you the same jolt of excitement and starstruckness? So does the novelty wear off of interacting with an idol if it's every night? It feels like that's impossible, but not till you start seeing them every night, maybe it does. And so there may be a lot of limits to this marketing strategy. So far, it's been around since 2005. AKB48 is probably not going anywhere. So, so far that is not the issue. But it just made me wonder that maybe sometimes it is. So, only time will tell. That wraps up today's topic. Next up on the show, we are going to talk about physical locations and the role that they have played in marketing and just promoting certain artists and all of that. We will also be going into some other unique things that I will uh, reveal later. A little intro to soft power and how different countries have promoted themselves to others. So I will see you around. Thanks for listening.